Hello and welcome to the Automotive Anecdotes podcast, the podcast that's normally for all that useless information your friends would rather you not talk about, but these episodes are a little bit different. We are joined by some very special guest panellists to talk about the future of motoring and more specifically the future of what's going to fuel it. Uh, I am the layman here, my name is Martin Clayton uh, on Twitter as at BobClayton92. Hi, uh, I'm John. Uh, so your usual host for the other Automotive Tales podcasts and at John MSM on all social media outlets. Hi, everybody. My name's Graham Bennett. I've been brought in to join the discussion uh, to present the views on hydrogen. Hi, everyone. I'm Jess Shanahan. I'm an automotive journalist and EV owner. I am at Jet L Bomb on Twitter. So... Episode four uh, of this uh, short series into the future of motoring 2030 and beyond uh, sees us come to uh, our final uh, subject uh, of debate today. uh, And one that uh, my uh, glamorous co-host, John, uh, is going to uh, take us through. Come on, John, you can take a compliment. Uh, So, John, uh, net zero synthetic fuels for ICEs. So what, what I presume you're saying here is that actually... We can just keep the engine. Well, yes, essentially. Uh, maybe maybe not the long term, but certainly in the short term. Um, so let me just explain what we mean by synthetic fuels. Um, so essentially synthetic fuels is creating um, a primarily a, a hydrocarbon, which is essentially what your petrol and diesel are. They're um, derived from crude oil and they're cracked into different chain lengths to make different types of fuel depending on the application. Uh, so everywhere from, you know, kerosene using an aircraft right through to heating oil, you might have to heat your house if you live in an older place like we do. Um, and essentially what we're doing is we're creating brand new, synthesizing brand new uh, hydrocarbons, which on the face of it sounds a bit daft. We're not trying to phase out fossil fuels because we're running out of them specifically, but because they produce a lot of emissions. <clears throat> so I guess the important thing to note is, is why we're synthesizing. So we're synthesizing fuel by extracting carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to put into the fuel so we're creating something that will still burn like a normal fossil fuel does but the overall cycle of that means it's net zero so you are only releasing co2 you've already captured and so you're never adding additional co2 to the atmosphere the way we do that essentially is you have two feedstocks so you produce hydrogen which graham's already told us an awful lot about both blue and green hydrogen and and you know the sort of time scales we'd expect to see those so using that source of hydrogen that's already going to exist in the future, we, we know the hydrogen economy is going to be a thing, whether it's used for automotive or whether it's used for commercial aviation, etc. It's going to be there. So it's tapping into that resource and then using a, a really clever technology called uh, direct air capture. It's a very imaginative name um, to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, um, essentially cleaning up the mess that we've already made uh, of, the, of the planet um, and then using some of that to bind with the hydrogen in something called a Fischer-Tropp process, which is a fancy chemical process um, that creates uh, a fuel. And you can actually tailor that to what, whatever you need. So you can produce kerosene, you can produce petrol, you can produce diesel. Um, and then you can use that as you would uh, backwards compatible into existing systems that burn it, be it you know gas turbine engines, be it petrol engines, diesel engines in a road car, a truck, an aircraft or a, uh, even a, in a ship. 
Well, two questions actually. Then, so you said there that it effectively becomes or could could be made into uh, diesel or petrol. Um, so, is that something that would be delivered in the exact same way as normal fuels? And then the second part of that question, I suppose, is: Well, th- does that mean I can go out and buy it now at my local petrol station? So, yeah, good question. So, the idea of synthetic fuels uh, is exactly about that backwards compatibility. I.e., you can put it into a vehicle you already have. Uh, the technology appears to have come from a combination of the marine industry and the aviation industry, where you've got things like you know your, your big jumbo jets you go on holiday with, big tanker ships that are moving around the ocean, moving all of our things we buy on eBay and Amazon <clears throat> from wherever they've been made to the UK. Um, those are basically big pieces of infrastructure, big uh, investments by the companies that are doing all the shipping that have a huge long lifespan. So we're looking to to go green in the you know the sort of ten to fifteen year period, uh, and ideally complete net zero by twenty fifty. We've got assets that are already in existence that are burning fossil fuels that are going to be in existence well into the twenty sixties and beyond. So the idea of this technology was to look at well how can we clean those up without having to scrap these really expensive pieces of technology or re-engine them, rip the engines out and put batteries in, or come up with another way of powering these systems. Um, and the solution was to produce clean fuel, i.e. it's a complete clean cycle, a net zero cycle. And as such, the idea is, has been that you could then retrofit these to existing systems. So the same could apply to the automotive industry. Um, so you would, in theory, be able to literally pick up a jerry can of synthetic fuel, pour it into your petrol uh, or diesel vehicle and drive away, uh, just as you would with a you know, jerry can of, of petrol from a, a fossil source. Okay, so and, and sort of th- linking this back to a previous uh, previous podcast discussions, particularly where um, I think uh, Graham really stressed the importance of looking at the bigger picture uh, mm. and not just what comes out the, 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 the tailpipe, but just reversing that very quickly, what does that mean comes out the back of the car? So that's a really good question. So basically exactly the same as what you'd get now. So what you've got is not a zero emissions at source like you would with a, a battery vehicle or even a hybrid vehicle where the only emission is essentially water. You're combining your hydrogen back with oxygen in the air to produce, to produce water. So you would still produce the same sorts, of, um, same sorts of emissions in terms of CO2. What you won't get is some of the other nasties that come with burning fossil fuels because a synthetic fuel is a very, very pure form of a particular hydrocarbon. Um, so normally petrol, you've got sulfur uh, mixed in with there and the emissions that come as a result of that tend to be quite nasty. So there are some benefits in terms of it will be cleaner than your existing petrol, but it will still produce CO2. So in an environment where it's quite busy, let's say middle of London as an example, it, it probably isn't applicable because what you're trying to do is reduce CO2 in a, in a concentrated area. Um, and so you'd only be producing a net zero as a whole cycle. It's that big picture question. In your local environment, your your direct emissions would still be there, would still be present. Um, but the whole system would be clean because you're putting it to atmosphere and then re-extracting it again after you've, after you've burnt the fuel. So as we started to allude to, I think, in some of the early episodes, it, it's not the silver bullet solution um but it might be a solution because it has this backwards compatibility which basically means where the you know big ship owners and and, you know aircraft uh, operators don't want to have to replace their aircraft the consumer you or i don't want to you know have to scrap all of our vehicles in 10 15 years time and go and buy a potentially very expensive uh, electric and or hydrogen vehicle it allows a a transition we can continue 
to use the vehicles we've got, but in a, a sustainable way. Uh, the other thing, actually, that's, that's really interesting about synthetic fuels, and the reason I've got quite an interest in it, is, is that backwards compatibility. Because one of the questions that, that came to mind when we first saw this legislation coming out is, what are we going to do about classic cars? And I've got a collection of, I call them classic cars, wrecks, um, <clears throat> piles of rust, whatever you wish to call them, uh, sitting around, which I love to bits. And the thought of not being able to continue to use those is quite a scary one. And the reason I'm really interested in synthetic, synthetic fuels is it could give us a solution where we can continue to enjoy these, uh, you know, these pieces of history uh, for years, decades, even centuries from now in a sustainable way that doesn't have a, a net impact on the environment uh, and, and basically allows me to continue to enjoy my passion. So it's a very selfish uh, interest maybe uh, in, in synthetic fuels. That's that's really interesting from my point of view as someone who works in, in motorsport and I don't know a great deal about synthetic fuels but you know is there any kind of like power loss or anything like that because obviously in motorsport we're using you know higher octane fuels yep. uh, petrol um, you know could synthetic fuels be used in the same way? Absolutely uh, and interestingly uh, one of the uh, one of the companies that are really pushing the boundaries of this is Porsche um, so they recently announced, I think it was about two or three weeks ago, uh, a project where, where they're actually trying to put the whole ecosystem of a synthetic fuel production together. So they're working alongside Siemens, who are providing um, they're providing a wind turbine to produce the energy, the green energy to produce the feedstocks, the hydrogen, the CO2. Uh, and ExxonMobil, who are obviously a fossil fuel uh, company, who are going to do the chemical processing of turning those feedstocks into a synthetic fuel all for Porsche to use to trial in motorsport. And their intent is to, is to try, I'm presuming endurance is probably going to be something like WEC racing, Le Mans racing, et cetera. Um, but they haven't set dates of when they're actually going to trial it, but that's the intent of the operation. Um, in terms of how it would affect existing race cars, the idea of it being synthetic is that it can almost be whatever you want, uh, much like we produce synthetic oils for engines, it's so that you can tailor the exact requirements to whatever you need. So you'll produce synthetic oils for engine that can run very, very hot if it's going to be used in endurance racing, for example. Or you might have a synthetic fuel that stays very, um, very liquid and very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't set in very cold temperatures if you're living in the Antarctic, for example. But you can do the same with fuels. So you can actually tailor the synthetic fuel to exactly what you want. So if you want a high octane fuel for use in a race car, you can tailor that in the chemical process. If you want something that's got a very uh, high flash point, that's very safe to be used in, you know, in transport or, you, you know, in, a, in an aircraft, for example, so there's no risk of instantaneous combustion, then you can produce something more akin to a diesel oil, for example, um, just by adjusting the chemical process. So it's, it's kind of a one size fits many. You can, you can adjust it for whatever you need. That's great. Thank you. Any other questions from the field? So I, I have another question just to kind of uh, off of what you've just said. So is, is there a way to kind of tailor efficiency? Could could we see, you know, potentially, you know, classic cars that are, are maybe doing, you know, just a few miles to the gallon because they're high performance, they're old, etc. Could synthetic fuels kind of help them to get more miles to the gallon uh, as well as maybe potentially, you know, be, be more efficient, faster, all of that kind of exciting stuff that that petrol heads and car enthusiasts care about? <laughs> I mean, potentially, yes. So uh, as we mentioned with motorsport, you could tailor, tailor the fuel to have, you know, different flash points to have uh, 
different RON levels, etc., so that you can burn a you know a higher octane fuel. So you could essentially produce a synthetic, you know, one or two octane or a one or five octane. Um, but I think your same limitations would apply. So you couldn't take you know the old rolls that we've got and stick in 101 octane fuel in it because it would pink and uh, and misfire like crazy. Um, so you'd have to modify the engine to go with in the same way you would modify it for uh, you know high octane fuel um, but it's entirely possible is that you can produce a, maybe a greater range of octane um, fuels for different applications but i don't think the fuel itself will particularly change the efficiency of the engine i think it's still in the modification of that engine itself okay interesting thank you mm. well it's interesting one i think it's a very good question from jess with respect to motorsport because i think again in one of our earlier discussions we touched on the ability of motorsport to act as an incubator as an innovation mm. incubator for for new solutions and we've seen through the history that f1s went from you know from the v10 area to the v6 turbo area to the to the hybrid era <clears throat> you could easily imagine that um in a control environment where you've got rules that you do have a control fuel now as long as that control fuel is the same for every team that's competing then yeah okay it might be a little bit slower than the year before for the whole for the whole field. So it, it really doesn't give you a competitive edge. Alternatively, you could loosen the rules and you could say, actually, we won't need to innovate on mm. fuel compositions. And Petronas and Shell and BP and everybody else, your job is to come up with a better fuel, a cleaner fuel, a, a more competitive fuel to make your teams more competitive. So, Yeah, and you, we might, may see quite a lot of innovation in, in essentially petrochemicals as a result of that, you know, waging waging war on the racetrack between Shell, BP and various others could be really interesting because those are some organisations with some real might behind them and some real momentum. So that could be could be very exciting in the world of motorsport. It's not quite the same as, you know, Colin Chapman throwing engineers at the problem, but, um, you know, it could be, could be interesting nevertheless. And certainly, I mean, in an endurance race, fuel uh, consumption and, you know, fuel usage is a massive, massive part of it. If you can eke out two or three extra laps from the same volume of fuel that takes X seconds to fill up, I mean, that could be the difference between a Le Mans win and not. It's interesting there that we, you've gone from um, a, a conversation about perhaps the retail market or, or even the commercial market, and we've gone down a motorsport route um, in, the, in this conversation I suppose what the, the question that I'm curious about there then, John, is that do you feel that looking beyond 2035 in the UK, obviously where, where obviously, you know, ICE won't be available on new vehicles, do you see it as being a, a, a sort of third supplementary fuel for people that can't get on board uh, or can't afford to be on board with the new technologies at that point? Are we saying that all three could work together in just different different ways, I suppose? Absolutely. And that's a really good point. So um, I've kind of focused on it from a perspective of being able to continue to use classic cars on motorsport, things like that. And the technologies come about from, you know, very heavy industry. But actually, the bit in the middle, your average consumer that can't necessarily afford a a new vehicle or doesn't want to buy a 10 year old battery electric vehicle that then needs new batteries. um, It it would produce that really nice consumer stopgap that means if you can't afford a new car, well, okay, we'll use your existing car, but put a green fuel into it, a net zero fuel. It doesn't necessarily solve our emissions problem. You will still get localized emissions, but it will, in the whole, be net zero. And that's what the target for 2050 is, because we know we can't remove all emissions from society. What we've got to do is make it net zero. So we're not 
increasing the temperature in the planet, we're not adding to the, the climate emergency. We're at least stabilizing. The technology actually that feeds into this, the direct air capture I mentioned before, has a knock-on effect that if we can develop that technology to this fuel, you can actually have a, a, a net negative effect, depending on where you look at it, negative effect, i.e. removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, we're using some of it maybe for synthetic fuels, but that that we extract and don't use could be stored um, much like they do with CCS, the you know carbon capture and storage, to reduce the CO2 and actually start to bring us back towards where we were before you know that the target date of was it 98 i think they base it on and right back to even potentially before the industrial revolution um so the technology definitely exists and it is around and it has these other benefits that we can kind of piggyback on which is being able to still keep petrol at the pump by being net zero um and i think it it will hopefully prevent this kind of gap of fuel poverty between you know those that can afford a, a brand new clean vehicle uh, and those that can't uh, but we'll still be able to be net zero using this sort of fuel. And just following on then from that, because uh, I think you've led the, into this quite well, on the basis that there could potentially be sort of fuel poverty in that regard, but also demand for petrol is obviously going, and, and diesel is obviously going to go hugely down when the restrictions come in. Is that going to have an effect on what the actual price per litre at the pump is for synthetic fuels? Or if it came on the market now, would it be similar to normal petrol diesel prices and that's a good question with regards to regular fuel um i I can only presume the price will start to go up as demand starts to drop off um currently the estimates and it isn't commercially uh available yet but the estimates is um i think from bosch they said around one euro 30 a liter for synthetic fuel which is kind of about what we pay currently for petrol or diesel give or take uh, you know a small percentage however it's worth pointing out that a good i think two-thirds of what we pay for fuel at the moment is actually duty and tax uh, on top of that the actual base cost of the fuel itself is about a third of what you see at the pump um, so by that measure we expect the synthetic fuels at the moment are about three times the price however if demand for fuel generally goes down as people transition to either hydrogen or battery electric vehicles i suspect the general pump price will start to rise uh, and at the moment the prices are maybe artificially low because uh, again demand hasn't been there but the supply still has um, because of coronavirus and people not traveling quite so much so it's definitely going to be more expensive for synthetic fuel but i think over time the the differences will start to balance out as we see a reduction in in the production and the consumption of fossil based uh, hydrocarbons and presumably taxation and taxation rules will will depend that will depend on the pricing as well if 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 the government i suppose if the government change how they tax vehicles as they get less revenue from conventional fuel uh i'm not saying they're going to remove it completely and go on a different strategy but that would help synthetic fuel absolutely uh, yes it is uh, but there's a whole probably a whole nother debate really in the in the what's going to happen with uh with fuel revenues as uh, as we move to electric vehicles obviously the, the government's losing a very large stream of, of income from fuel taxation um currently battery electric vehicles are t- tax exempt um so as we start to move to that obviously there's going to have to be some sort of replacement for what we currently pay as the road fund license or road tax as you would call it which will dwindle away as an income for the, the government as well and obviously they're going to have to recoup that cost from somewhere to continue to maintain the roads and, and the infrastructure that goes with uh, but there's a whole other debate on how we might address that for the three different technologies that maybe we can get onto in the in the final episode 
Jess, did I interrupt you? Were you, you, were you about to ask a question? Sorry. I was going to ask a very, very similar question to you, Martin. I was going to, I was going to ask about, you know, because the government is going to be potentially losing so much money from vehicle excise duty and from, you know, fuel tax. Um, they've talked about in in the past moving to like a price per mile structure where people mm-hmm. pay tax based on how much they travel on the roads, regardless of you know how it's how the vehicle is fueled, but. Do you think that that means that if if synthetic fuels now are currently uh, more expensive, do you think if everyone's paying per mile and they don't have to tax so heavily on fuel, actually that price could come down quite quickly? Or do you think there would be that tax on top of the fuel as well as some kind of price per mile system? That's a really good question. Um, and I'm not entirely sure. I guess it will help if there's no taxation or reduced taxation on the fuel itself. Um, because if we, we use that kind of two thirds, one third model, you're going to be looking at, you know, three or four pound a litre if you add the same amount of fuel excise duty on top of synthetic fuel. So I definitely think that model would help and it would help with the adoption of people moving from using a fossil fuel in their car. They're still running. Um, to, to using a synthetic fuel it would make it certainly a lot more appealing leave the fuel duty and excise on your fossil fuel and no uh, duty excise on synthetic fuel but yes the the pound per mile um will then have an impact i mean i, I dare say for years i've thought that would actually be the the better thing to do with fuel so when you've got you know you've got a car that's got a five liter v8 supercharged and does five miles to the gallon uh, but you only do 10 miles a year in it then you know why pay loads of road tax when actually you pay for the fuel you use you're not going to use a lot of fuel but you've got a super efficient you know one liter three cylinder i don't know toyota igo that does 70 80 to the gallon well you're not using a lot of fuels you won't pay a lot unless you do a hundred thousand miles in that car then you're paying per mile it's always seemed a more sensible solution to me um but telling a consumer you want to put more money on uh, on fuel taxation um in lieu of you know road tax probably wouldn't go down very well so that's probably why successive governments have never done it and i suppose at this point then looking at the time i'll open it to the floor have we got any more questions uh to uh to 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 pin john down on um or do we feel that's a good point to uh probably have i think over the last sort of three episodes we've definitely come to a conclusion which we can wrap up nicely in a uh, in a bow for episode five um but any more for any more around the table I don't have any other questions, but I think I just want to kind of go back to to John's early point that this is such a good solution for this like transition period of like, we're still going to have all of these, you know, internal combustion engine cars on the road. So how how do we make it so they're more green and they're running more smoothly? Um, and it, it just makes so much sense for that kind of transition to when maybe we are driving around more hydrogen and battery electric vehicles. Yeah, I would agree. It sounds very much like a virtuous circle, John, that we can capture the CO2 and maybe not just directly capture, but we can capture the CO2 from refineries and plug it back into synthetic fuels at the point of, of pollution, if you see see what I mean. Yeah. So, you know, you capture that CO2 from blue stacks in, in refineries, feed that back into a synfuel system and stick it in a pipeline and ship it off to Heathrow Airport or something to be used in your aeroplanes. Yeah, and actually, Greg, uh, one last point probably for me that you, you kind of touched on there, which is the being able to use this fuel and move this fuel around because it's exactly the same as what you've traditionally got, your fuel, your petrol and your diesel at the pump. It can be managed in much the same way. So one of its massive benefits, certainly in this transition period, is it allows us to use our existing infrastructure uh, without having to change a great deal. 
And I think that's going to probably be its, its biggest benefit. Um, its its biggest disbenefit, if you will, is probably the fact that it's quite a, a embryotic technology. So I guess from my point of view, I'm willing the likes of, you know, uh, ExxonMobil and uh, and Porsche and Siemens and, and Bosch and all of the people that are involved in it to really put the hammer down and get this uh, get this to market um, so that it will actually fit in neatly in that transition period. You need to be writing to Jean Todd and saying, you want this in F1 in two years time. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be my afternoon's uh, job. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time on those discussions there. Uh, hopefully it's been enlightening for you listening uh, as well. But it just leads me to say, uh, Jess, a big thank you uh, for your uh, input on this one. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. And Graham, thank you as well for joining us and taking time out your schedule. Uh, thanks, Martin. I enjoyed taking part in the discussion. Brill. And John, uh, I'm sure we will be back. Uh, but uh, thank, you, thank you for co-hosting with me or taking your specialist role uh, in this week's episode. Uh, and we will see you all very soon to continue the discussion. Excellent. Goodbye. Don't forget to like, comment, share and subscribe. Thank you for listening.